Chuck Slatkin, I'm here with Steve Gould, and uh, we are here with the Elgin Project, and uh, we're also going to be talking about what the Elgin was and why we're doing this, and as the great historian once said, if I knew this was going to be history, I would have paid more attention. <laughs> so Steve, uh, how are you doing today? Um, so far, so good. <laughs> That's good. So ask me another question and we'll see. <laughs> okay. Well, I, on the way today, I looked in uh, uh, Wikipedia to see what it said about the Elgin. And, uh, I'll Does it change? I'll share. Well, it always changes. It says the Elgin Theater is the former name of the building now known as the Joyce Theater. So I, I have no idea what they're talking about. Anyway, located <laughs> on the corner of 19th Street and 8th Avenue in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan in New York City. Whew, finally got to a period. Okay. The theater showed films from its opening in 1942 until 1978. Its longtime manager, Ben Barinholtz, invented midnight movie programming for the theater, Following a gut renovation, the building reopened in 1982 as the Joyce Theater, a 472-seat dance theater. I, 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 is that real or do they make that up? I don't know. Anyway, no. so the theater programming until 1977. The theater opened in 1942. Yeah, well, we know that because we met one of the uh, old-timers and... Uh, he was the one that said that <clears throat> New York City put a moratorium on building movie theaters during World War II, and this was the last one that was finished before that moratorium came in. Yeah. And, and the reason it was called the Elgin, for those that wanted to know, was because the principals involved dotted the I's, crossed the T's, and they were getting crazy, and they wanted to get out of the room. They wanted to go, I guess, home to their wives or whatever. And the guy said, uh, well, no, no, wait a minute. We got to name the theater. We got to name the theater. And he, uh, he took out his watch, and he looked, and he said, yeah, that's a good name. We're going to call it the Elgin. So that's how it got its name. Yes, it was designed by Simon Zelnick. He was the guy who was responsible for the design of, of, Call him of, up. of the Elgin. So, and the theater was located, said, in, in Chelsea section of 8th Avenue and 19th Street. And, and that brings us to today. And today we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, well, how we became involved with the Elgin Theater slash Cinema. Uh, Everybody it, calls it theater and it's a cinema. Yeah. And, well, it, but it had a stage. Oh, and there were live shows there, so it, it's uh, kind of of sorts. So we'll get, we're going to talk about uh, that that experience and uh, uh, how we uh, got to know each other. So for so for those of you who w knew the Elgin, went maybe gone to the Elgin, you're going to have a real opportunity to uh, you know relive some great moments. And for those of you who were like uh, 
not born at that time. Exactly. Uh, you're going to hear stuff that you're going to realize, wow. And, you know, and while you may have missed an extraordinary place and time, you'll be able to uh, experience uh, some of what it was like to be there just from the discussions that we're going to have with uh, various people t uh, talking uh, about that. Now, for those of you who are old enough to have gone to the Elgin and didn't shame didn't. on you exactly so that's you know just remember that was a time in movie theaters where in designated areas like our balcony you could smoke and it wasn't necessarily tobacco yeah yeah i mean i i i met somebody who shall go nameless probably because i never got his name but um where he came up to me at some event and talked about the fact that he financed his education at NYU by uh, selling drugs at the Elgin. <laughs> and, well, uh, well, we put how, a lot of kids through college. What can I say? And how he appreciated that. But, uh, I mean, I never, un I never un understood that stuff was being sold there. I knew no. that stuff was being... Uh, Consumed. Uh, exactly. So depending on some of the shows that were, were on, uh, was how much the, the audience would be on. Because I remember like uh, in the El, El Topo days when we would, I put together a, a, a tape that would be played at like maybe 10 minutes as people are coming into the theater, you know, uh, and it would end with uh, the Stones' brown sugar. Yeah blasting on the great Elgin speaker. I mean, it really proved how beautiful mono could sound. Yeah, really. Uh, if it was big enough. And, and uh, there'd be times that people couldn't contain themselves in the audience and they would get up on the stage that was there at the Elgin and, 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 and start dancing. Yep. And the audience is, you know, clapping along <coughs> to the music and cheering or whatever. And then the beginning of El Topo would come, and people would, you know, you know, voluntarily they'll run back into get their seats or whatever to watch the beginning of that. And uh, anyway, it's, well, uh, I wasn't. I was the uh, new kid on the block <coughs> with that, and uh, the individual who I assume uh, first hired you, Ben, yes. uh, wound up hiring me, but not really for the Elgin at first. He was using me as a second string at uh, the other places that uh, they had uh, the Garrick and the Orpheum. So, um, and then uh, when there was a demise of those two, um, I came in, I think uh, before that, who you? Who were you with? Well, I was actually not hired by Ben to work at the Elgin. Oh. Eventually, I was like promoted into that track, but right. I was originally <clears throat> hired by Al Momfeld. Oh, Al. Okay. Who was managing the Elgin at that time? Okay. And, and through uh, our mutual friend, as it turned out to be Andrew Mikowski. Oh, yes. Andrew was the one who recommended me to go in there to to work. Uh, because there was openings on on the on the day shift for a, 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 what we called the ticket taker in those days was a doorman, yeah. and, and there was some evening shifts as as an usher. 
and I was I was looking for a job, but I went so I went into you know be interviewed by Al Momfeld, and you know Al was an was an individual. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he he was like kind of a unique guy. And I went in to be interviewed by him to see if I could qualify. Did he smoke Lucky Strikes? Exactly. Yes. So what happened was, is the, so I'm sitting there and I'm looking at uh, at uh, Momfeld, and he's smoking uh, Lucky Strikes, and he's got a can of Schaefer beer on his desk. And I sit down and I look at him and said, Ah, Brooklyn Dodgers fan. So I hired myself at that point. But anyway. Uh, even then, I was aware of how people's conditioning impacted their behavior. Yeah, but yes, but Al Al was an interesting character. But he actually was the one who hired me, and I uh -huh. started. Um, so I had experience of working as a doorman and an usher, then becoming a cashier, then an assistant manager, then a manager, and at that level, that's when we met. Right, and that took. That whole experience was probably an hour and a half or something. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, but anyway, so so I got so when I met Steve, I was meeting somebody that I looked at as being like a professional. That, that was your mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that this was somebody you know who worked for like real theater chains, not like this imitation place that, that we had put together. Yeah, yeah. That's when I got my ass thrown out of. Uh, out of a variety of places, uh, a couple of a uh, couple of them, uh, I was very happy to be thrown out of instead of getting silver bracelets from the cops. So, um, but uh, no, I, I I liked Al too, and I uh, I wound up, uh, I guess uh, after after the Garrick, um, I think what happened one time. Uh, you came over to the Orpheum when I was managing there, and that's actually, I remember I, the first time I think we met was when you had come over to the Orpheum. And then um, when that uh, flick of buck a day uh, <laughs> uh, closed, we, uh, we then uh, went on to decimate uh, the the Garrick Theater, which yeah, is no awesome. longer on uh, Bleecker by Thompson. It's now a uh, ne'er do well uh, apartment complex. But uh, and then that got uh, that got closed quickly. And uh, and then when uh, Ben said, "Well, uh, maybe you can give us a hand down in Philadelphia." Yeah. And that was, uh, I still remember what W.C. Fields said about Philadelphia. I'd rather be dead than in Philadelphia. Uh, and, of course, his wife got back at him by putting on his gravestone, all things considered, maybe Philadelphia would be better. <laughs> but, uh, no, I enjoyed myself down there uh, on South Street because it was a TLA cinema that uh, mm. Ben was involved with. But uh, How long were you down <laughs> Uh, too long, <laughs> uh, but um, I was down there for I, I don't know maybe a few months, wow. and uh, and then uh, that's when I think um, Ben made a deal with uh, Al Malfeld, who got uh, time off of good behavior uh, at the Elgin, 
and uh, worked out some kind of deal with uh, Ben for the TLA Cinema, which I I gather he had for you know a number of years, and that's when uh, I came in and uh, you and I put together the Dog and Pony Show for uh, for the Elgin. Yeah, well, I I originally uh, before Al went to Philadelphia, Ben had offered me the uh, the TLA job, wow. and uh, uh, Sherry, who was my wife at the time, we worked uh, together. We went down to Philadelphia to go to the TLA for a while to see what was going on and, and make a decision if we were going to move th- move there and. And 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 take that managing position at the TLA. I think that the thing that impacted upon us most about the reason not to be there was this was the time of uh, Rizzo, 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 and the cops and Horrible. the dogs on every corner. Right, because and, that was in that was in uh, one of the black areas, South Street, in, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that was tough time. And uh, seeing that, and then also. Uh, you know, at at five o'clock in the city, the bell would ring and people would just, uh, you know, leave the city. Yeah. And, and and it wasn't like there was a hell of a lot of people coming in at night for for nightlife. So anyway, it just didn't feel right to us, and we turned it down. Then, the the job was offered to Momfeld, but I think Momfeld came back and said, "If I'm going to do this, I need a piece of the action." Right. Right. So. And the other thing about Al Momfeld is that he rented a, a one of the apartments in, in the building uh, near the Elgin that mm-hmm. Ben subcontracted or whatever he did there. And that when he was designing his apartment, like the entire bedroom was a bed. And he had built this huge bed. I mean, it had stuff. But it was like it was the, the world's biggest bed. And... Uh, and did he have a meter next to it? Or <laughs> well, I guess he had a a healthy uh, yeah yeah uh, goal in mind. So anyway, but that's so that's how I started. And then of course, when we uh, uh, met, All right, at the Orpheum, and it's funny you mentioned Flick a Bucket Day because that's a joke between us, because the idea at that time was to show at the Orpheum. A different film each day. Each day. And they charge, were 16 millimeter. Right. And charge $1 admission. Right. So I came up and, try, and, 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 and suggested to Ben that a perfect name for the, for the, for the, the theater the whole program yeah. would be Flick a Buck a Day. <laughs> and, he, and he just rejected that yeah. out of hand. It was like just too stupid to him. And uh, uh, but so Steve and I always referred to it as Flick a Buck a Day because it was, and that was what year was that now? Uh, we're talking about, oh, I don't know, probably uh, maybe very early 70s, something yeah. like that. So we're, we're, we're talking like 45 or more years ago, is it really? Well, I got dumped uh, when uh. What freed me up was I wound up getting dumped from uh, the Translux Corporation. A guy came in that used to work for Lowe's, Gene Picker, 
and uh, Dick Brandt, who was the chairman of uh, Translux, hired Eugene Picker as executive vice president. And I guess you have to show muscle when you come in. So I was, at least in the home office, the uh, last hired. And I uh, <clears throat> I worked for a guy who was a really great guy, uh, uh, Gene Sella. And uh, the other guy that I worked for when I was in the movie theaters was Bob Marr, who's uh, recently passed. And uh, we all used to go out for lunch together. Now, unbeknownst to me, uh, Gene Picker had told my boss, Gene, uh, get rid of that kid. We can't afford uh, the money. Uh, just uh, cashier him out. Give him two weeks and get him the hell out of here. Well, Gene really liked me, and it was really uh, reticent about letting me go. So for about four months, I wondered why uh, Gene Picker kept looking at me horribly when I would come into the office. <laughs> and finally, Bob said at one of the lunches, you know, Steve, Gene, meaning my boss, Gene, yeah. uh, is really, uh, feels really bad, but he was told months ago <laughs> to get rid of you, and uh, he just doesn't have the heart. I said, who? Why? He says, well, Gene Picker was cleaning house, and you were the last hired, so you're going to be the first fired. So um, they all, we, you know, we pay the bill for lunch, and they say, well, come on. I said, well, the hell with that. You know, if I'm fired, I ain't going back into that office. And uh, I left everything there. Actually, I had a $100 bet. It was one of the last times I ever, uh, I used to smoke a pack a day. Last, uh, Sm a pack a day of bets? Uh, yeah, a pack a day. And uh, no, I think it was, yeah, I was that time smoking Winston, yeah. Winston. But I was smoking a pack a day. And the chairman's uh, secretary used to come in and she said, uh, uh, I'd like, can I have one? I said, you know, Ursula, you're always smoking OPs. And she said, oh, you think it's so easy to stop smoking. Uh, why don't you try? I said, I have and I can do it. She says, ah, bullshit. So uh, I, uh, I said to her, here, take this pack. I guarantee you. And she says, you guarantee me? I said, yeah. So I said, what's the guarantee? She says, let's make it 100 bucks uh, a year from today. And at that time, it was, you know, like, I don't know, January or something like that. So I wound up walking out of that office, never to return to it in September. And I never picked up my hundred bucks, but I never smoked again. Yeah. So anyhow, so that was one of the, uh, one of the things that precipitated my uh, beating the grasses and coming to Chelsea to work uh, for uh, Ben at those theaters. Yeah. I think you're the first person I ever met who quit smoking on a bet. <laughs> and won. And won, yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't yeah. win the money, but at least... No, I no you, 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 you won your life. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. That, that's, that's, that's... But, uh, well, no, well. It, was, uh, it, it was really uh, terrific. And I, uh, I've said to uh, people, this was, this was a, a, a job that I... I guess I was destined for. I first came to New York. I thought I'd be working in theater, and I got the job when I was going to school. 
managing at night and uh, never looked back because I loved the movie business. And, uh, and it was exciting when you and I started doing it because we had a lot of fun putting stuff together. Sometimes our hair got on fire, but uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it's a it's a great experience, and it, or I should say, it was many great experiences. I mean, the first time that we that we met to discuss what, what we were working together, where we went out to lunch at Bright's Coffee Shop, which was located on Eighth uh, Avenue and Twenty First Twenty First Street. Yeah which had a, a lot of connection for the people who worked at the Elgin over those, the, those years. And one we, of those diner, uh, yeah. diner uh, Formica for counter things. Right, yeah. right. Grill and, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. it was really uh, you know, quite, quite a place. I, I, I remember that with a great fondness and a, and a number of stories. But the first story was meeting with Steve Gould. Hello, Steve. Hi. Sitting down and looking at the menu, and me hearing Steve order oxtail ragu. Hey, what can I say? I was brought up in a strange household. <laughs> so to me, I mean, I had seen oxtail ragu on the menu for years and always found it a fascinating name. You know, this was long before vegetarian and vegan, Chuck. It just sounded, it had a sound to it. And it just and I, and I didn't even understand it or, or know it or whatever. And when Steve ordered that, I mean, I had never seen a person eat oxtail ragu, order oxtail ragu, even talk about oxtail ragu. And here was somebody who was meeting for my initial meeting, and he's ordering oxtail ragu. It was just, it, it, it was, I knew then. That that this was going to be something special, <laughs> Steve Gould, that is. <laughs> and then I got you back when we went to that uh, restaurant on Ninth Avenue and Twenty uh, Third Street or Twenty Second Street, Italian. Well, actually, Argentine, but uh, Italian food. And we were all uh, drinking a good deal of the grape at that time. Uh -huh. And you had ordered uh, fettuccine Alfredo, and I came over. <laughs> not knowing or forgetting that you couldn't take a lot of pepper, and I yeah. continued to grind <laughs> fresh pepper all over your fettuccine Alfredo. Yeah. I also remember another fettuccine Alfredo of yours, uh -huh. and I believe it was, it was at the, uh, the, the, the diner at 8th Avenue, 23rd Street, when you fell asleep on your face in it. Oh, yeah, that happened sometimes. <laughs> I've been known to fall asleep in my food. Yeah. Oh. I mean, there are so many great stories to tell, taking the kids to out to eat to the to, to Chinatown. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was borrowing my uh, dear friend Barbara's uh, car and uh, everybody smoking the rope in the car. And I went the wrong way. At that time, Union Square was not all gussied up with all these fancy uh, stalls and everything. It was just uh, streets. And some went one way, some went the other way. And I wound up uh, <laughs> I wound up on a one-way street the wrong way. And a police car is behind us. And he pulled us over. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, this is great. We've got a guy, you know, on the sun deck in the back there and uh, eight people in the back seat looking like a clown car 
So uh, <laughs> the cop comes over, and he, uh, by that time I had hoped that we cleared out enough of the smoke okay. that you didn't yeah. smell any sweet stuff. So uh, I said, officer, uh, I'm really glad to see you. He said, you are? I said, yeah. I don't know what the hell happened where I am, but I said, uh, you know, uh, my father be ashamed uh, of me because, uh, you know, he he, uh, he worked uh, at the uh, 18th, which was one of the precincts, uh, Midtown. He said, oh, he did? I said, yeah, he's, uh, I shouldn't have even gotten in the car till I knew where the hell I was going. But, uh, you know, I run this uh, theater and the kids in the back there uh, with uh, taking them to uh, Chinatown for a bite to eat. And he says, oh, all right. Oh, well, uh, uh, yeah, follow me. I'll get you down there. So we followed the police car and uh, all was well. But it became quite something as uh, everybody was referring to themselves as the kids for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it worked. Yeah, it worked. It worked. It worked. Yeah, it seemed that there was always a lot of uh, food issues involved. I remember those uh, those times when we uh, closed weeknights and you had uh, people, uh, it's kind of like our own kind of... Uh, uh, What's that uh, term they use now? Rave. Yeah. We have our uh, own uh, '70s rave at the at the theater, and uh, we'd go down to the pizzeria and get bring back a couple of pies to eat and things like that. Yeah. So. And it, be, it became quite an experience there because we never knew who would be invited and who would uh, show up. And uh, or what they would do when they got there. Yeah. So it was um, the entire theater was in use at once. So while <clears throat> there may have been musicians on on the stage because there was a stage there and people musicians brought their instruments with them, while at the same time there were people in the projection booth who were trying to either show s some new film or try some technique to see how this would work with that, whatever. So that was going on at the same time. And then there'd be all kinds of other things that uh, people would be doing in the, in the 1970s uh, in different elements of the theater because there was the orchestra, the balcony, there were offices downstairs, there were rooms in the back. So it was uh, you know, quite, quite, quite stuff quite a lot of stuff going on and sometimes you know you saw people you worked with and they were and they were celebrities right they're yeah. still meeting people and hearing stories about what took place at at, at those uh those what did you call them raves raves yeah, raves, before, like raves yeah. before there were raves, raves but yeah. uh, i definitely on, on one of these uh uh, discussions, talks, uh, get Peter Zagarian here to talk about his experience with the great jazz uh, bass Basis. player Jimmy yeah. Garrison at one of these things at the Elgin. And uh, for that reason, I'm not going to tell the story. I, I want Peter to tell that story. Okay. Since it happened to him, all I was doing was sitting in the orchestra Watching this, watching this happen yeah. uh, uh, with all these, uh, seeing my my friends and these gr jazz greats, you know, jamming together. But there were funny things that took place there. There'd be other other times you'd see, you know, 
you wouldn't necessarily know somebody who was quote a celebrity and then people would say oh you know who that was you know yeah at the party because people were inviting people and there was you know the pizzas and uh, whatever people had to uh, drink or imbibe. Yep. Convivial time had uh, by all. And sometimes the, the, the imbibbery, <laughs> some people maybe uh, imbibbed more than they could chew at that time. So we sometimes had to help people through those experiences yeah, too. Pour them into a cab. Yeah, well, once they were able to yeah. <laughs> be poured. Yeah. So it it was so there there were so many experiences. So when Steve and I came, you know, wor work, working together and trying to you know get to know each other and whose strengths and what the other weaknesses were and how we could you know you know work together because when you're on a theater, there are a lot of hours <laughs> that oh, yeah. the theater is open that there has to be somebody there in in uh, in, in in charge. We were open a lot of hours. Uh, you know, so, uh, and then also one of the other early things we did was, um, since uh, it's uh, one of my uh, great joys, um, uh, one of my great joys, we, uh, uh, I like uh, gardening, and, uh, and your uh, wife at that time, Sherry, was uh, a big gardener, and uh, we decided to... Um, put a uh, garden on the roof of the theater. So um, we uh, did uh, absolutely unheard of things by buying uh, plastic wading pools, kids' wading pools that were like uh, eight foot in diameter. And uh, <laughs> Chuck was uh, down in the alley behind the Elgin, and we had set up a winch, and uh, we were hauling up... Uh, <laughs> Oh, must have been 10 or 12 of these giant wading pools and then <laughs> bales of peat moss and, and things up there. And we were growing things and it was getting really crazy. And I remember one, uh, uh, two things stand out about that. And we all had a great time. And actually the vegetables were uh, terrific. The, uh, the staff and, and uh, Chuck and Sherry and, and I, you know, enjoyed them. But uh, two things that stand out was one time uh, the, the, uh, the suits from the 10th Priesting came over and said, can we look at your roof? And I'm wondering, what the hell they want to look at the roof for? Well, it seems like the NYPD helicopter had spotted things <laughs> growing on our roof. And I guess from a distance, the tomato leaves looked like cannabis leaves. So, uh, you know, we took, I took them up there and they said, you're growing tomatoes up here? I said, yeah, you want a couple to take back to the station house with you? I said, no, 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 no. I said, well, what did you think? He says, well, never mind what we thought. But uh, the other thing that happened, one year was an absolute bumper crop of tomatoes, and it was getting colder. And uh, Sherry and I knew that they, uh, they weren't going to last the week because of the coldness coming. So um, for two or three nights during uh, that week when people uh, left the theater at midnight, uh, they got tomatoes grown homegrown Elgin tomatoes to take home with them. So uh, the Elgin was used for uh, a lot of things and uh, for a lot of times. Yeah, well, I, uh, 
as it evolves over a period of time, I mean, a lot of people, uh, French Tuesdays, Japanese Wednesdays are part of their experience. Other people, it was uh, the ballet films or the opera oh, films. Yeah. Other people uh, uh, were uh, samurai films. I mean, it was different things to different people. Yeah. And then, of course, there were the midnight shows and the all-night shows, which uh, had a whole other life of, uh, of their own. And uh, swordfish. It reminds <laughs> me of, again, Bright's, the yeah. same place that we had our first meal. Well, after the all-night show, when I, I worked with Steve Lido, who was, had a path similar to mine, working up and becoming an assistant manager and, and I guess at one point manager of, of the Elgin. Uh, uh, I would work with him somehow to get, and after we closed up, whatever it was, 6.30, 7 yeah, in seven, the morning, yeah. I would go to uh, Bright's with uh, Steve Lido. Bright's was, uh, was it 24 hours or they just opened early? I don't just know. opened early, yeah. yeah so they closed so like around 1 and then opened up again at 6 or something. Because I went in there and they would always like have the day's soup bubbling <laughs> up. And it, and it was just smelled so good, <laughs> the yeah. soup. So we would sit down, and Steve Lido would always order uh, 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 French toast and French fries. And I would always say, what, no French crawler? <laughs> but I'm saying this is like every week for, you know, yeah. a year. But it was just that those those, those, those were... Well, phenomenal experiences, the uh, midnight shows and the and the all-night shows, which to me were totally different, a totally different experience. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, there were times where when the uh, all-night shows would run late, uh, we, uh, we would have uh, some of those people, the same people, which is unusual, but some of the same people uh, were really hot to see uh, the ballet films and would say, Listen, if I help you clean the theater up, could I stay to see the ballet or the opera film? So uh, it was uh, developing a kind of strange uh, family that uh, wow. morphed into uh, the, the Elgin, uh, the Elgineers, I guess. Well, also the, 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 with some of the people who cleaned the theater, we needed all the help we could get. Yeah. Going back to the great Benny Lee Ford. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure. The erstwhile trumpet player who forgot that you have to finger the trumpet to make it work. <laughs> One good thing about Benny Lee Ford, though, is he was a good softball pitcher. Oh, that's right. So he was on yeah. the Elgin softball team, oh, which yeah. was a whole other, other oh, yeah. experience. I mean, thinking of the precinct, there was the time I went to speak to uh, the uh, precinct about possibly scheduling a a softball game between the, the 10th precinct and uh, the Elgin softball team. And I was speaking with the guy, and I, and I and he said, well, you know, I'll, I'll give you my number. You can call and answer. I said, well, what's your name? And he said, uh, Tom Collins. <laughs> and I said, oh, my name is LSD. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was it was what an amazing an amazing experience so when we when we worked together try to 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 work work things out and uh you know uh, i don't know if it was actually like a uh, 
division of labor or whatever, but there were kinda things just, that, uh, you know. You know, we kind of went into it. Uh, there was no uh, formal uh, setup or anything. It just seemed to happen. Yeah, well, there were things that you, you were very, well, you were experienced in, 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 in real theater practices like booking films and, and uh, making deals and stuff like that. You also, you know, knew people and people knew of you. And they still talk to me. <laughs> and and, uh, and for me, it was, I, I just kind of like fell into doing the, the press thing because when I first came to work at the Elgin, and uh, I mean, to me, it was an amazing place. And, and Andrew Mikowski was, yeah. was going to do a, a press mailing, and I asked him, you know, well, where's your press list? And he handed me the cards. They were like uh, twenty six people. Yeah, this yeah. this this was this is a unique theater located in Manhattan in New York City. There had with, to be more than twenty six. Yeah. So I got permission basically to uh, expand the list. Yeah. And my my theory was, you tell the world, let them decide about it. Yeah. Don't predetermine what's going to happen or who what's appropriate, and that became like the philosophy of, of of, of my doing uh, you know, media work that I still you know main, maintain uh, today. Yeah. So, uh, but and uh, I think it was uh, always a good point. I mean, it was actually started while I was not there. I guess maybe I don't know. You and Ben had to talk about it or something that. Um, uh, the late uh, Andrew Saris always got a hair across his ass because he uh, wanted to see El Topo but uh, wouldn't come down to screen it at midnight. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite rightly, uh, some of the things like our all-night shows, our midnight shows, or the morning ballet and opera series, one of the reasons why it worked was because of the immersion factor of being at the theater and with that type of audience and quite rightly, you know, if the critics didn't want to come at that time, so be it. Was it Andrew Saris? I always thought it was Vincent Canby. Oh, was it Canby? Oh, yeah. all right. Well, they look alike, so I can... <laughs> no, because I, I, I remember because I was, in, you know, in, involved in that because, you know, it was like the, the, he couldn't believe that we wouldn't schedule a separate screening for him. Oh, okay. And uh, and and so it didn't get reviewed by him for a long time and and and, and when he, you know, he was a, a a great film critic, but I think this particular film re review had a little chip on its shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> but it was it was it was it was really great doing that egalitarian um way of of dealing with people that celebrities Unless they arrange something specifically in advance, would get no, no, no. no yeah, they treatment. waited online. That yeah. was when. Uh, what's the guy uh, who was in Ship and Ship of Fools? Uh, Michael Dunn. Yeah. He was in line for uh, one of our movies, and I think it, I don't know who it was. What? No, it was Robert Redford. Oh, Redford, yeah. Ro no, Robert Redford, Michael Dunn, and somebody else who I were okay. in the same line. Yeah. But one of them Different said, from, "One of them said to the other, oh, uh, we have to join the line.' And I don't know, maybe it was Michael yeah. Dunn saying, "Yeah, we all got, got to join the line." Yeah. You know? 
So yeah, it was uh, it was good to be egalitarian. You know that was. Um, but I mean that's just the way uh, it seemed to uh, work best. But but we us. did make accommodations because who was it? It was I'm trying to remember which male ballet dancer was it Nureyev or was it the other guy? No, Barishnikov. No, it was Barishnikov. No, it was an American. No. <laughs> Was it Barishnikov? No, I think it was no. O'Brien. <laughs> yeah. It was O'Brien. But whoever it was, their people called up and wanted to work out a way that they could get Nureyev into the, into the theater. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it with, was with, This is coming back to me now. Nureyev into the theater without him being hassled or people bothering him. Yeah. So I told them, well, people go in. You know, but the the, the 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 film itself doesn't start till you know twelve oh seven. So between the time that the line is in and twelve oh seven on a weeknight, there's gonna be no problem you just whisking him into the theater. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah. We would you we would you know, uh, work 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 with people who had uh, you know, special requests, but just because some because someone is necessarily like uh, you know the film critic for the New York Times. Therefore, I get a special thing when other people... So part of the experience was, you know, waiting online. People then began, you know, coming in costume and... Uh, well, it was uh, wait, uh, waiting on two lines. First, uh, to buy a ticket, right. and then to go to the ticket holder's line. <laughs> but, the, but the genius of Barinholtz in his designing this thing and working it out with the distributors of these films is that you didn't have to pay a separate admission for the midnight show. If you were there earlier, you could stay for free. Because it was You didn't ben clear the house. Right. Because it was Ben's idea that word of mouth is gonna make these things is, is gonna make this stuff work. So yeah. make an experience and like what happened with El Topo and it carried on with some of the other ones was the ability of people to bring their friends. Here's something I discovered. Right. Come to this experience right. with me, and they would, you know, and that and that would continue because it really was like, you know, uh, you know, a happening, and so you know, celebrities would come, people would come. It was it was just uh, you know extraordinary, uh, and then of course uh, uh, for El Topo, John and Yoko came. And uh, that was the end of El Tobo, and that, yeah, and that was well, that was the end of for well, us. It, it, in a sense, it was the end of El Topo, and it was also the end of the mystique of the uh, uh, El, Pope, El Topo because they ended up with um, Alan Klein, Alan Klein deciding to open at, at the Embassy 47th Street or some right. theater yeah. like that on, on a, a grind, on, on, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was crazy. It totally destroyed the, the whole mystique, yeah. the, mystique the, yeah. the, the mystique, the mythology of it, the experience of it. And, uh, you know, the film still is, you know, watched and people know of it, whatever. But, you know, it's like there were certain films uh, that it worked. And, and uh, again, we, we want to uh, 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 speak to um, Pink Flamingos. Oh, yes. John Waters. John Waters down. to talk about his experience with that film and, and, and the, El the Elgin, the, the, that whole experience. And then we had the uh, other uh, uh, experience with, of The with, Heart of the Come. Yeah, with Jimmy Cliff. And uh, that was their years. And as a matter <laughs> of fact, uh, 
still be there. To, yeah, it could still be there. <laughs> the uh, stayed open. Yeah. We uh, we had such a uh, a success with that for such a long time that we were able to uh, speak with his uh, agent and uh, worked out that uh, for I don't know maybe what was it the third anniversary or something uh, we had this uh, big party at a midtown restaurant and Jimmy Cliff was there so uh, what was it the Two Bears Two Bears restaurant yeah, yeah. so. Yeah, and he was there, and it was we, we had, and it was, and it was Earl Wilson of the New York Post came. Yeah, yeah. This is a guy whose entire life was like eating and drinking for free. Yep. And and writing what were those columns called? That gossip column? Or well, whatever. Yeah, he was, yeah. had a, a column he ran in the uh, in the Post, but uh, yeah. So I mean, uh, it was uh, we developed uh, kind of a. Uh, B uh, track record, <laughs> bizarre as it might have been, in terms of how uh, uh, you know the longevity we had, but uh, and a lot of the distributors uh, couldn't uh, couldn't understand it. You know, it was like uh, uh, like you were saying about staying over. You know, they figured, oh, you got to clear the house, and and that's why you know they were getting pissed off because they weren't getting. Uh, account that they sh thought they should have, but uh, the guy from uh, the harder they come, he was a good guy. Yeah, it was Jerry Frankel. I think people that had uh, a latitude in how they s viewed the film business uh, were tolerant of uh, some of the uh, crazy goings on uh, at our theater, uh, and for that reason. Uh, you know those films uh, succeeded. I mean, we we had a meeting at uh, with I guess it was the general manager of Twentieth Century Fox because we thought we could uh, also do that with uh, Phantom of the Paradise. Oh yeah, and uh, they torpedoed that, saying, "Yeah, oh, you're not going to do that." And uh, you can see uh, how good Phantom of the Paradise is now. And not every idea we had was a success. The first all-night show was one like when ran by accident. It was the uh, Phantom India. The, yeah, Louis the, Mal. Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah. What was that? Six hours or something? Yeah, it was six hours, and it was uh, a way of we we had to fit it in somewhere, and uh, you know we had already yeah. uh, scheduled things, and then uh, I guess we were talking with Ben and. It was uh, uh, put into that slot, and we saw there's, you know, there's gold in them, there are hills, right. and we started uh, running uh, the all-night shows. Because I think we had done, the first thing we did, maybe it was for WBAI, it was like a fundraiser, War and Peace. I think that well, was... Well, maybe. I think that was done, but that wasn't like our idea. Right. But uh, it's still something that took place at at at, at the Elgin. But the the first one that, that that I remember of us, you know, booking it with this idea for Marx Brothers movie. The Marx Brothers, yeah. Because what yeah. we did is we bo booked the the split in a week, so you had. Right, you had one for uh, Friday, and then the other one yeah. was booked for Saturdays, and then uh, right. when one finished, you know, we had them as midnight shows, so we, they each got uh, a cut of the box office, but it was, like, very weird for distributors to see four films 
in a sense, playing together because they're going, how is this working out now? <laughs> so, uh, but I still remember uh, uh, the one uh, young kid, I forget where, maybe he was from Chelsea, but I thought it was a little distance away. And uh, he had some, uh, I guess, developmental issues, but he loved the Marx Brothers. And uh, his mother used to call us up at the box office and say, uh, Lenny wants to come to see the movies. Can you make sure he gets uh, on the subway So uh, after the show? And uh, he always came, and I can remember, I think one time, maybe it was Zagari that was in yeah. the box office or something. He sees a young kid Lenny coming up, and instead of asking him for money, he says, what's the password? And the kid says, swordfish. And he says, okay, you can go in. <laughs> so uh and so we had <clears throat> we had a, a, a lot of those uh a lot of those things and and people that uh uh albeit regulars uh that were in their own right irregular and uh they uh they came for their particular films that they liked uh the one guy that always always wore uh trucker's hats and uh chewed cigars outside and he'd uh, always want to see all of the old uh, gangster films that we'd book from uh, Warner Brothers and stuff, you know, all the Cagneys and and Edward G. Robinsons. And that was his uh, meat and potatoes. So yeah, I had a lot of people that, you know, were happy for um, the selection of films we had. Yeah, and all different kinds of people would come. I remember once I was working in, in the... In the box office cashier I don't remember what the film was playing but Richard Pryor came up to the window to buy a ticket he took out the biggest wad of cash that I've ever seen in my life now remember the top ticket we were charging was $2.50 and I'm seeing now, this is a day where there were bills bigger than hundreds, but I was seeing hundreds and fifties and whatever, and he's whipping through to finally maybe get down to a 20 yeah. that he could buy his ticket. But I, I just, you know, I, I was thrilled to see him, and then, you know, my mind was, you know, what, what? You know, what was what was going on here? But uh, I wish I, I, it would have been nice to have written down the, this quote celebrities who came the time that uh, Richard Rogers came in his uh, Rolls Royce. Oh yeah, the, that's right. Yeah. yeah, and then of course uh, I remember uh, Woody Allen, who was a big fan uh, of the Elgin, came a lot to sp see the uh, old-time comedians featured. The Elgin was mentioned as a scene in one of his short stories. Yeah. And, Whatever, but he would, he was a very, he was, a very, I say, actually say he was a very peculiar guy, but he would come in, 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 in a chauffeur driven Burgundy Rolls Royce, but he wouldn't have it parked at the theater. He would have it parked, you know, yeah. a, a block Locked or two yeah. away. Yeah. Because yeah, he didn't want to be noticed in his Burgundy Rolls Royce. Well, but, there's a lot of them in Chelsea, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but yeah, he, well, listen, one of the uh, th things we, the Elgin did, was we were the first uh, 
Woody Allen Film Festival that was ever held. But we only have a few minutes, so maybe we need to talk about it another time yeah. where we can run it down uh, briefly a little bit there. Yeah, but I mean, those, uh, yeah, I mean, what we tried to do was uh, festivals, uh, maybe selecting a director. I mean, uh, a lot of that, even uh, the earlier times, uh, even while. Uh, ben was in charge, and then uh, the three of us, and ultimately us. But in the early times, he was making deals with uh, the uh, uh, the late strange Raymond Rohauer uh. uh, for a lot of the uh, Buster Keaton films and uh, D.W. Griffith films, and all of those uh, because they weren't seen. And quite rightly, I mean, uh, how, how many places, how many movie theaters? Uh, could you go where you could see something that was a silent film uh, shown on a step-down projector so that it was shown in the correct frames per second that, uh, I mean, frames per, uh, per minute that uh, you could see it so it didn't look strange and also have live piano accompaniment. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. That uh, <laughs> Oh, I, I was hoping that you remember because I keep thinking it was something with uh, like, uh, Calvin or something, and it was uh, and wasn't he um, Sarah Vaughan's uh, pianist? I think it was. Uh, yeah, and then, yeah. then uh, because we had one week where we had to quickly find some kind of recordings because uh, the woman, uh, the you know, the vocalist, whether it was Sarah yeah. Vaughan or Ella Fitzgerald, but uh, whoever it was, was going out on the road, and he had to say, "I got to leave. I can't do this." So, uh, but I mean, that's uh, one of the things that right. we were uh, and he, we, and, and we were he, famous he, for. He he was a brilliant uh, musician, and he wouldn't always maybe play within the uh, the bounds uh, of the bounds sure. of it. So you would see, yeah. you know, a, a phenomenal uh, experience that wouldn't be the same even if you saw the same picture picture twice. But yeah. I think we should, you know, at this point, uh, thank uh, Ian, our engineer. And also uh, talk about the fact that uh, we're going to get some uh, interesting people uh, to talk about the Elgin in, yeah. in, in upcoming well, more interesting than we are episode. Oh, hope so <laughs> episodes of the podcast. But for those people who've actually stuck through this whole whole first experience here, uh, uh, I'm afraid you're hooked. So uh, come with us uh, down uh, the Elgin uh, path. path and. Uh, <laughs> It, it, just great, great experiences uh, and uh, stuff. And you'll that, enjoy it. Even if you weren't there, you'll have a hell of a time listening to uh, what was happening uh, when it was. Right. And as we talk to people, we're dis we always discover things that we didn't even know were going on in that place. So anyway. And still don't. And, <laughs> and, and for sure. So 8th Avenue and 19th Street uh, on the uh, uh, northwest corner. Uh, now it? known now, as the Joyce, the Joyce Theater, but uh, it was the Elgin. So anyway, well, thank you for uh, putting up with our uh, our rave, and and uh, uh, and, uh, and and now we'll go to whatever music we're able to get from somebody someday. <laughs> Thank you.